0: You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Thank you guys for leading us in worship so faithfully. Uh, Good morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Josh. I'm the pastor of Praxis here. If it's your first time, you're a guest or visitor um, honored to have you here on behalf of the staff and elders. We're honored that you've, uh, you've joined us here this morning. Um, we're going to be beginning a study in the book of James in two weeks. Our official launch is September 12th. We will begin a, a bigger study. We've got study resources to go with that. Um, but in the two weeks before then, I wanted to do something a little different. This is still very much foundation laying stage for this church plant. And so we wanted to dip in and take a look at... Our mission statement, and I realize many people haven't seen this yet, so we've got it up on the screen. We exist, Praxis Church exists, to follow Jesus and to make him known. We exist to follow Jesus and to make him known. And we've got some conviction around why this is. When we talk in today's day and age around what it means to be a Christian, probably a number of different things come to mind. First, first up, it might just be something we believe. To be a Christian, something we believe. Others will think it means that you've prayed a sinner's prayer or invited Jesus to live in your heart. Neither of those, that language around either of those things is found in the Bible. Um, it's not intrinsically bad, but rightly understood. To be a Christian is to be someone who follows Jesus. Following Jesus is front and center in our mission statement. Because it's, it's central, it's, it's the key identity of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. In the New Testament, 17 times, Jesus says, follow me, 17 times. And typically, if you've been here, you know we work through one big section of a big book, and we just keep going through it. This way, we don't really, like, aren't prone to just making stuff up. We just have to play it like it lies, if you're a golfer. We're, this morning we're using two texts we're going to kind of take a look at two bigger texts from these 17 instances that jesus says this and we're going to look at three things if you're a note taker this is for you we're going to look at the call to follow jesus we're going to look at the cost of following jesus and we're going to conclude by talking about the joy of following jesus so if you haven't already grab your bibles we're a church where you need to bring one and um, we're a church that preaches from the bible and where it's good for you to have one um, if you don't have one with you. We've got some in the back you can use. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you. You can also just grab your phone right now and type in Matthew 4 ESV, and you can follow along this week on your phone. Though please bring a Bible next week, because the fun thing is is you can start to make notes and mark it all up like mine, and then one day you can pass it down to your kids. Let me uh, me open us in a word of prayer, and we will dive in. Father... I thank you that we get to come together as your people, worship you, um, fix our minds back on the accomplishments of the cross, the glory of the cross, the scandal of your love towards us. Thank you that you're a God who is self-revealed of himself to us. You're not far off and distant. You're imminent and you're near. You've spoken through your servants as they were carried along by your Holy Spirit and you've preserved the scriptures for us for thousands of years and we get to open your word we have the Holy Spirit in us illuminating the words of Christ and we pray this morning would you come and do that, would you illuminate the words of Christ I pray that in the name of Jesus, amen alright so there is 17 instances Jesus says follow me I want to look at Matthew 4 Matthew 4 You've heard it read already, but i like to chip through it and talk about it. So Matthew four eighteen, uh, Jesus says, while walking by, or pardon me, um, it says in Matthew, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Pr- lots of us probably familiar with this text. Immediately, they left their nets, and they followed him, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat, cast with their father, mending their nets. And immediately, they left him and their father, and they followed him as well. If you hung a right in your Bible, go to Matthew 9, you'd see the next instance. Jesus comes across um, um, Matthew, the tax tax collector, and Jesus says, follow me, and he, he leaves behind his tax collecting. Very lucrative job follows jesus over and over and over you see this because this was jesus's mo from all that we can tell this is how everyone came into discipleship to jesus jesus walked up to them said these two words follow me and then people did that's how you became a disciple now that word disciple depending on your walk of life and who you are probably conjures up different ideas if you're a a tradesperson, might make you think of your red seal journey if you're uh, a student or ever have been, um, might make you think of it a teacher or a professor. If you've studied martial arts, it might make you think of your sensei. This this idea of discipleship. There's many lenses that we can kind of think of this through. Uh, but this word, um, in order to really help us understand what's going on in the text and discipleship in the first century context, I want to I want to share some things. I think that will make this text come a lot more alive. And i got to warn you, I like to do this, but I'm going to get really nerdy for a few minutes here. Um, in the day and age that this was written, young Jewish children at about the age of five would go to school, kind of like today. They would go to a school, it was called Bet Sefer. Bet Sefer. and it stood for House of the Book. They would go away, they would be taught in a local um, synagogue or temple. They would be trained from the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, so that all Jewish kids learned about the law of God. Now, every student would go there, but most would sort of eventually kind of trickle out back home to the family trade, helping out around the farm with the sheep, with whatever they got going on there, agricultural, um, making nets, um, crafts, something like that. Uh, Eventually, around the age of 10, most boys and girls, if they did graduate, would at that point return home to the trade, but with a bit of understanding. Maybe they've memorized some scriptures. But the best students, kind of the creme de la creme, they would go on to a secondary form of education called Bet Midrash. Bet Midrash um, stood for um, House of Learning. House of Learning is what Bet Midrash meant. And they would begin studying the other writings, so the law and the prophets, the whole rest of um, what constitutes the Old Testament of our Bible. They would learn um, the oral traditions of how the 613 laws from the Old Testament should be applied in everyday life. Um, But there was a saying that if a 1,000 students entered um, Bet Sefer, only 100 would ever graduate. Now, of the 100 who might go on to, to if a 100 went on to Bet Midrash, only 10 would ever graduate. But they would have graduated probably having memorized most of the Pentateuch. But beyond that, um, if, if, if somebody wanted to press on further, they would continue on into an even more grueling form of education, that of discipleship under a rabbi. Now, to enter into this rabbi discipleship, relationship, a student would have to show incredible acumen. He'd have to come and and, and prove his worth, show how much scripture he'd memorized. He'd kind of show up with a transcript, submit it to the rabbi, and then the rabbi would choose the best of the best, who he thought had what it took to become like him. These students would leave their home, and they would become what is called a Talmudim, That's the word where we get disciple or apprentice from. They've become a talmudim of the disciple. Now, with that bit of knowledge, that bit of nerddom, listen to this again. While walking by the sea, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen, and he said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Now, notice... Peter and his brother Andrew first start following Jesus. They weren't Bet madras honor students. These guys are working the family trade. They probably don't have a stellar academic resume. Peter seems to be really good with a knife and sword fighting. He he knows more about fish and sailing than scripture. Notice also, it wasn't them who come up to the rabbi and say, hey, can I be your disciple? But the the rabbi who comes up to the to the disciples, and says, come and follow me. And this, what we're reading here, would have been completely backwards, countercultural to this day and age. Nobody did this. This is backwards, but there's an important theological truth here as well. Because nobody chooses Jesus. No one chooses Jesus. Jesus chooses us. No one comes to Jesus by way of a resume. We've talked about that a lot this summer. You come to Jesus because he invites you to follow him. And the invitation still stands today. If you're here, you're not a disciple or you would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus, we're honored that you're here. You need to know Jesus isn't waiting for you to come up with some spiritual transcript or some list of good deeds. You're not accepted as a disciple of Jesus based off of anything you do but everything that Jesus has done. Your invitation into discipleship isn't something that you knock the door down on. It's something that Jesus has come and knocked down the door for you to be able to enter in. The invitation of Jesus is follow me. And there's no other religion or worldview or philosophy in this whole world that is as scandalous as that. Discipleship to Jesus begins with him inviting us. The God of the universe inviting us to follow him. That's how we become disciples. God becomes like us. God takes on human flesh and becomes like us so that we can become like him. And I want to explain that. There is an objective to discipleship to Jesus. Jesus calls us because he actually wants to do something in us. I want to explain that. A Talmudim, a a disciple, that word there, for all intents and purposes, was a full-time apprentice. They would follow the rabbi wherever he went, sleeping where he slept, eating where he ate, going where he went, day after day, they'd just follow him around in his dusty footprints as he walked the path, hearing what he taught, observing what he did. And there's actually an early first century blessing where people would say this. They would say to a disciple, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And a couple different meanings of this. Like one, they're like, may you just follow your rabbi everywhere. It also meant like, They would sit down in the dust at the feet of their rabbi and to be covered in the the dust of your rabbi as he taught, it was a a blessing. This was the goal of the Talmudim, to know the rabbi, to follow him everywhere so they could become like their rabbi. And they did this by dedicating themselves to learning and practicing what was called the yoke of their rabbi. The yoke was the set of instruction that that rabbi had. They They would seek to perfectly practice this yoke so that at around the age of 30, when, when they graduated from their becoming a Talmudim, they could go on and become fishers of men, which was a phrase, of a way of saying, I'm going to go and teach the yoke of this rabbi. Now, as I'm saying, this, some of the, there's probably some like gears clicking together from lots of things you've heard in the New Testament. I can go on, I can get, but I've gotten really nerdy enough. What's important that we see is that the objective of the discipleship process that Talmud deems um, objective was to be with their rabbi so they could become like their rabbi, so they could go on and do what their rabbi did. Be with the rabbi so they could become like the rabbi and go on and do what the rabbi did. The invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation into this process to come be with Jesus so we can become like Jesus so that we can go on and do what Jesus did. Jesus became like us so we could become like him. Our mission statement is to follow Jesus and make him known because this is what Jesus calls us for. This is what the purpose of the Christian life is. This is quintessentially what it means to be a Christian. The disciples, they lived all of life with Jesus for three and a half years, day in, day out, doing every single thing with him. And then if you were to flip over to Luke 10, or if you remember the story, you remember Jesus sent them out. They were with him, and then he sent them out two by two. Go and do what I did. Then they'd come back and be with him. Then Jesus died, crucified, died, um, resurrected, ascended. You remember, he sent them. We're going to go into this text next week in Matthew 28. He commands them to go and make disciples. Go and spread my teaching. Go and make disciples. Go make Talmudims of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. This is the rhythm of discipleship to Jesus be with him, to become like him, to go and do what he did. This is the goal of your and my discipleship to Jesus. Now that might sound, I don't know what it sounds like to you, but maybe it's like kind of, sounds a little crazy, experiential, but it's true. And actually, it's all throughout the scripture. If we want to be effective of Jesus, effective disciples of Jesus, we need to know him. John 17, 3, Jesus said, this is eternal life. That they know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Eternal life is to know Jesus, and it's begun now. To quote an author, eternity's now in session. If we're going to know Jesus, if we're going to be Christians, if we're going to experience eternal life, we need to know Jesus. We need to know who he claimed to be. He said, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father." Said, "No one comes to the Father except through him." Made some outrageous claims. We need to know what Jesus did. He, he came and incarnated as God-man. Now, as readers of this 2,000 years after the fact, most of us know that Jesus went on to die. This is kind of like what Jesus is famous for. He died on a cross. But this text, Matthew 16, is the first time that he's told his disciples. And it's easy to look at texts sometimes with a bit of um, sometimes with a bit of chronological snobbery like we look back on them and you're like these daft disciples how did they not figure this out right i do this all the time And we've got to remember this is jesus is breaking the mold of what they think the messiah is has come to do um, they're not slow they're just in the middle of the story and haven't been to the end of it yet so you know these guys have been spending three years with jesus following him everywhere they're assuming he's coming to take over a military victory and suddenly he tells them this so so peter says no far be it from you lord far be it from you to go be crucified and killed really i think what he's saying is far be it from me far be it from me (laughs) i'm not going there i've been following you for three years you're not going to lead me there Peter wants no part of it. And honestly, you and me are a lot more like Peter than we might realize. But Jesus goes on. He says, get behind me, Satan. Now, that might sound really harsh. Kind of like, hey, Jesus, you've got to be a little bit more like Jesus. So I want to I try to explain this just so that we make sense of this. I've kind of alluded to it already. The entire Jewish system um, was looking forward to a Messiah. They thought this Messiah was going to come and push out their Roman oppressors and they would be free. There'd be this military victory. So people are looking at Jesus, kind of assuming he's going to come usher in a military victory. When Peter says, far be it from you, I think he's Jesus rebukes him the way he does because Peter is tempting Jesus. The same way Satan tempted Peter in Matthew 4. Now, if you're not familiar with that, or let me jog your memory, um, Jesus goes out into the wilderness and is tempted. He prays and fasts um, for 40 days, remember that? And Satan comes and tempts him three times. Basically, what Satan comes and does is he, he tempts Jesus with glorification without a cost. Hey, say this. Turn that rock into bread. Throw this down. I'll give you, do this and I'll give you everything. And this is always Satan's strategy: glorification without crucifixion. This is the title play of his entire playbook. And there's just a hundred different strategies aimed, aimed at the exact same thing. He comes and he whispers, "Why wait? And you can have it now. Why wait for eternal glory when you can have some glory now?" Why invest in heavenly treasure when you can have some now? Why wait for heavenly satisfaction when you can have some tonight? Satisfy your thirst here. Indulge in your hunger here. Cash in here. Same strategies that are aimed against us today. We're tempted with the quick and the easy But it's not the way of christ jesus told his disciples where he's going because there's there's they need to know where he's going because there's no other way to be a disciple of jesus than to follow him and he's headed to the cross martin luther said this he said they gave our master a crown of thorns why do we hope for a crown of roses Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross, follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. To follow Jesus is to pick up a cross. And there's a cost to it. There is a consequential cost to being nailed to a cross. Luke 14, um, 27 to 30, Jesus says, whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after him cannot be his disciple. For which of you, Jesus says, desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down, count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and isn't able to finish it, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and wasn't able to finish. To be a Christian is to follow Jesus, and this is where we're going, is to a cross. Have you considered that? If you've started on this journey, that's where it has to end up. Not everyone's living this. Not everyone's preaching this, that's for sure. Some are treating Jesus like a cosmic pinata, trying to whack blessings out of him, unpack higher levels of enjoyment and possessions. Some don't really want Jesus at all, they want his stuff. They want sex, they want houses. They want promotions, they want prestige, they want to be admired, they want everyone to like them, they want pleasure, passion, they want everything. They want Jesus to give it to them. Glorification without crucifixion. This isn't the way of Jesus. Jesus was willingly crucified, knowing what it would accomplish. This wasn't Satan getting Jesus in an armbar. This was Jesus walking Satan into a trap. What looked like the greatest wicked act ever to be done on earth, Satan, mankind crucifying God, was actually God's plan to unleash grace on humanity. The greatest sin in humanity was actually the greatest victory in all of human history. lots in that you can unpack that for years and never get to the bottom of it here's autonomous man apparently thinking that they've pulled one over on the almighty and they've actually walked right into a trap and accomplished all that god purposed jesus willingly was nailed to the cross because of what it would accomplish and if we're going to be his disciples we need to be willing to be crucified and to pick up our cross as well and we have the same promise that it will accomplish something we don't, we don't take pick up our cross or crucify our flesh in order to earn anything or to purchase anything, but in order to partake in something. Discipleship to Jesus is discipleship into death because it's only through dying that we can put on new, the new life that he's invited us into. John 10.10, Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. That life begins now, and the way into it is by letting go of what's here in order to grab hold and lay hold more on what's over here. And every day, the invitation of the Christian life is to let go of this, put to death this, so that we can put on more of this, partake more of what he came to give us, this new life. Luke 14, 33, Jesus said, So therefore any one of you who doesn't renounce all that he has can't be my disciple. Your hands are already full. You can't be my disciple. If you want to fill up with what I came to give you, you've got to get low, let go of it. We need, to, we need to make sure that we don't just think this is something that's going to happen one day up the road. Like, yeah, I know ultimately I'm going to die and I'm going to leave everything behind. This is something that will take place at some future date. This is actually something that needs to take place over and over and over and over and over and over over in the Christian life. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, let him take up his cross daily. If we are actually disciples of Jesus, this is what it looks like. The goal of discipleship is to be with Jesus so we can become like Jesus and we can go on and do what our rabbi did and he died on a cross it's only through denying and dying to ourselves that we can actually be conformed to his image Luke 14 27 Jesus said whoever doesn't carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple praxis are we taking up our cross have we taken up our cross. Have we counted the cost? Are we perhaps maybe living a life better defined by indulging than dying? I don't know about you, okay, but I know at times I wrestle with believing that there's more, that God wouldn't be more glorified when I'm more glorified, when things go more my way. I wrestle seeking my glorification now. I want everyone to like me. I want recognition now. I want position now. I want honor now. And when moments arise, Jesus calls me to serve or put down my own good in order for the benefit of others. It's hard. Many times I try to put down the cross and pick up a crown. I have a hard time believing Jesus isn't glorified when I am. There is a thousand siren songs that beckon me, and I know they beckon at you too. They're all over sexual imagery, sexual activities outside the design God has for it wrongful use of drugs and alcohol, clothing, fashion, getting your hair did, getting your nails done, getting new cars, new partners, new houses, better positions. Watching that next episode, the, the siren call of our culture is treat yourself. Indulge. In fact, culture tells us we need to indulge or we're not being authentic to ourselves. We need to see this is supremely antithetical to the gospel. It's a a purposeful, designed lie of Satan aimed at us, trying to keep us off the pathway to discipleship, aimed at keeping us ultimately from the joy of discipleship our third point, and this one's going to go really quick. There's a call. There's a cost, but there is joy. I would be missing this. I wouldn't be doing this justice if I just said it's all about pain. It's a pain that leads to joy. Early on, though, okay, early on in discipleship to Jesus, it it can just feel like pain. It feels like a dying to all the things that used to give us joy. Anyone familiar with that? You're like, ah. there's an easiness for a bit, and then it just gets really hard. But discipleship, it's not just the denial of pleasure, it's the pursuit of a higher pleasure. If to indulge our flesh is to deny the spirit, so if to indulge in our flesh is to deny the spirit, then to deny the flesh is actually to indulge in the spirit. We need to see that, and there, there's a painful exterior, but it leads to actually way more. I'd love to um, look forward to the day we're gonna be able to talk about spiritual disciplines because they're really healthy practices that can help us actually walk into that more and more. Um, just to use in an analogy, I've, my wife and me have had four daughters. <laughs> I, my wife has never said, you know what, I'd give that girl up if I could go back and not experience birth pains. Neither is any mom. Because kids are gifts, they're fantastic, they're fun. There's a lot of similarity here. There's a pain in what Jesus births in us, but there's a greater joy at the back end. If you recall um, the parable of the buried treasure, I put it up on the screen, Matthew 13, 44. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus said is among us, kingdom of heaven is broken in. this new life with him. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and then he covered it up. And then in his joy, because he knows what's buried in that field, he goes and sells all he has so that he can have that. That's the invitation. That's the joy. When we see it, there's no cost here. There's nothing that could be too much. We just wish we had more to give up so we could have more of that. There's no pain there because the treasure is so good. We found a better place to indulge. Therefore, we can joyfully put off these old indulgences for new ones. To be a disciple of Jesus is to believe this so much that we will trade all we have for it. willingly deny ourselves, deny the indulgence of our flesh to feast because we rightly understand that what we're doing is we're lifting our soul up from crumbs on the floor to set it down to a feast at the table. There's more. Hebrews 12.2 says this. Look to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was for the joy set before him that Jesus did all this. That same joy is set before us. The invitation of Jesus is to follow Him, follow him to a cross, for the other side of that cross is a feast. That feast comes by way of the cross. There is false teachers galore who will promise you the feast here. That crown now with no crucifixion, they're liars. They've bought into the lie of Satan. The same same lie that Satan aimed at Jesus in Matthew 4, the same one that Peter tried to sell Jesus with early on in our reading um, in Matthew this morning. There's a There is a feast before us, and it comes on the other side of the cross. The question is are we picking up our cross? I want to quote, kind of paraphrase, I think, more another pastor. He said this We can't crucify ourselves. We literally just don't have enough hands to be able to do it. We need the Holy Spirit, and we need one another. The call is to pick up our cross, and we can't do it alone. Jesus had a man help carry his cross up the hill. Are you in community? Are you around people who can see your stuff? We want to be a community. As we talk about this this mission statement, really this, this idea being summed up in following Jesus, we want to be a community that is doing this, following Jesus. We want to be a community that partners together in resisting the call to indulge, that partners together in crucifying our flesh, that walks together this journey of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. I'm going to put a couple questions up on the screen to, to ponder as we move towards a conclusion here. The band's going to come up. The question I want us to think about is, How can we this week? Because I would say this isn't just Praxis's mission statement. This is every Christian's mission statement. is to follow Jesus. How can I more intentionally engage in following Jesus this week? Couldn't that look like If, If I leave you with just two questions, think of this. What is a simple, really, and it could be practical, like go, with two minutes, how could I begin to follow Jesus? That needs to move into with two minutes every Morning. how can I begin to follow Jesus, but how do we practically actually make the decision to do this? Second thing is there anything in your life that you've been vivifying that you've been Trying to make come alive that actually needs to be put to death Something you've been growing instead of killing somewhere you've been seeking a crown rather than a cross.